And as they head back, I'd like to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. This will be our last sermon in Genesis uh, in this particular series uh, before we jump into Exodus next week. So we'll be in Genesis 49, uh, examining more closely verses 8 through 12. And uh, it's the first book of the Bible. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you, uh, it will be page 42. So as, they, uh, as you turn there and as the kids get settled in, I just want to thank, uh, thank Naveen for praying for uh, us on our, our journey before we head out. And also thank you in advance for your prayers throughout the week. You know, as, as John said, I can't reiterate it enough. Uh, this isn't Tanner and Scott's trip. This is our trip. We're just going as representatives of Redemption Hill Church to find out how we can partner with this group of missionaries that are taking the gospel to a portion of 1.273 something billion people uh, who live in this particular country uh, that make up our globe. So um, this is a, a tall task uh, for us to, to be a part of global missions, and yet uh, what else would we desire to do as those who follow Christ and love Him? Well, uh, as we dive into the scripture this morning, uh, Micah and John helped us uh, introduce this idea of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And as we, we think about the kingdom, it's sometimes helpful to think about the kingdom of man. So we, we know uh, that there have been many kingdoms rise and fall throughout the history of man, and yet we see this even happening in our time. Most of you are aware that uh, the, the nation of Syria has been in a civil war uh, for about the past three years. Over these three years, they have seen 100 thousand people killed. Some of the attacks have targeted women, children, even medical facilities, hospitals have been the the, the target of some of these nasty uh, attacks. And perhaps some of you saw some of the images out of Aleppo that uh, were were captured on February 14th, just a little more than a week ago, uh, where you had these barrel bombs that were connected to the Syrian government and the the Assad regime uh, come in and and strike uh, residential areas. So we have this this picture of a little boy. He's crying. He has dust covering his face and, and tears falling from his eyes because He was afraid that his little brother had been killed, and he nearly was killed. And so you can see a picture of of the family here as they absorb all of this hate and the atrocities that are happening in Syria currently. So we, as, as the church, should pray for Syria. We should pray for our globe. We should pray for peace, God's peace, to enter into these, these nations. And yet we know, as history tells us, that that kingdoms have been plagued by rulers and by leaders who exercise great evil when they are at the helm of power. This seems to be the case in Syria, and it is the case in different parts of our world. 
But even as we look at these horrific pictures and as we long for a, a better kingdom and better leadership and government to be brought in to the country of Syria, we're also reminded that not every king or every leader has been unjust, evil, malevolent, but there have been many honest and honorable leaders. There have been many good leaders that have fought for, for the prosperity and, and flourishing holistically of the people of their land. And so this morning, I want us to think about the, the coming kingdom of God and how that all of our longing for what is good, what is true, what is just, what is right will ultimately be fulfilled in the kingdom of God with the coming King, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that, that God and his kingdom will stand when all other kingdoms of the world fail. Isaiah 40 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are like dust on the scales when it comes to the rule and reign of God. God's kingdom will be the only kingdom left standing when all others rise and fall. So as we think about the, the kingdom of God, I want to introduce to you this morning the true and greater king of God's kingdom that we see prophesied in the book of Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 12. And so before we read those, I just want to frame this section of the narrative by looking at verse 1 and verse 28, which basically serve as bookends of this blessing of Jacob. Now, you'll remember from last week, if you were able to, to worship with us or caught the sermon online, that Jacob had 12 sons. He had a favored son named Joseph, and, and God, through his providential workings, uh, even though Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, God raised him up to the right hand of Pharaoh and, and not only uh, preserved the, the lives of, of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, but also even preserved the lives of his family. Jacob and, and his sons eventually come to Egypt and they are spared by God working through the life of Joseph. And so now you have Jacob the patriarch, okay? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons. Jacob is at the end of his life and he is speaking this word of blessing on his 12 sons. So what does verse one say? It says this, then Jacob called his sons together and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Okay, so right here in verse one, we can see what we're about to read has a prophetic element in it. There is some foretelling happening here from Jacob saying, hey, you can expect that, that you and primarily your descendants are going to experience these things into the future. And then look down at verse 28. It says, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. And so you can see that, that Jacob, in all of these words, gives words of blessing. They're, they're indications of how God's favor is going to rest on the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, and even how at times some of them are going to receive judgment and consequences for their character and the way that they live their life on this earth. Now, we would expect, right, after looking at the Joseph narrative, that the greatest blessing 
would fall on Joseph, right? I mean, after all, he was the favored son. He was the one that God raised up to the right hand of Pharaoh. He was the one that the blessing was flowing through. And Joseph's blessing was great to be sure. There will be great fruitfulness coming from the God who is described as Joseph's uh, God in chapter 49. He's the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of your father, the almighty, El Shaddai. All of these descriptions are true of Joseph's God. And this is a great blessing that Joseph receives. But I have to tell you that Joseph did not receive the greatest blessing. It was Jacob's son, Judah, in verses 8 through 12, who receives the greatest blessing from the hand of his father, Jacob, which was coming, of course, from the hand of his greater father, God himself. And so let's read these verses together, verses 8 through 12 of Genesis 49. It says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So let's ask the question, who is Judah and what is his significance for us? Well, we discover from the, the, the Joseph narratives and the, and the Jacob narratives that Judah was the fourth born son of Jacob. Now, he, like his brothers, did not have it all together. In fact, if we were to go back to read uh, Genesis 38, we find that, that uh, Judah was uh, a sexu sexually immoral man, and he blew it more than once in very heinous and, and twisted ways. And so, um, so we have this, this narrative unfolding, this kind of dark shadow over the person and, and life of Judah. And yet, as we saw last week in the Joseph narrative, there's, there's a change going on in Judah, because he offers to substitute himself for his, his brother Benjamin, who was about to be imprisoned. So, so it's not all bad when it comes to the life of Judah. But at the same time, we need to realize that it is broken, imperfect people that God chooses to use in mighty ways, even to bring the Messiah, the very Son of God, into the world. And so I hope that encourages you this morning. I mean, if God uses imperfect people like Judah, who had blown it royally, he can use people like you and like me for his purposes in the world. This is articulated in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1, the first three verses, says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. 
So did you catch that? Again, we, we have Isaac and Jacob flowing out of this Abrahamic line, the, the one through whom the nations of the world would be blessed. And then when we come to Jacob's sons, all 12, we would expect that the one that is going to come through the blessing would be not Judah, but Joseph. And yet here it is. It's the, the, the line of Judah by whom God will bless the world through the coming Messiah. So as we look at what it will be true for the line of Judah, we must understand that these prophecies, okay, we said we will see the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in many ways throughout the Old Testament, through typology and through these themes that are ultimately fulfilled and resolved in Christ. And then sometimes the Bible just gives us very direct prophecy saying, hey, this is what is true of the Messiah. Be ready. This is what you can expect. And this is one of those passages here in Genesis 49. So as we look at Judah here and this blessing that falls on Judah, one of the takeaways that I want us to see is that Judah, okay, don't miss this, Judah will eventually live up to his name. What does the name Judah mean? I mean, I'm sure many of you have been reading through the Old Testament. You've been reading the footnotes as well that kind of explain sometimes why they're named, what their name is. So Judah's name means praise, And we see this in the opening line of verse 8. It says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your brothers will one day bow down before you. And so we have the fulfillment, not necessarily in the life of Judah, but in the life of one of Judah's descendants, ultimately the Messiah who would come. He is the one who is worthy of praise and the one who would receive praise. And so as we dive into these five verses, I want us to ask the question, Why is it that this coming king, this coming Messiah is worthy of praise? And I think we see at least three distinct reasons why, okay? The first is this. The king will be praised for his victorious reign over all his foes, all right? The king will be praised for his victorious reign over all his foes. His foes. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we're not necessarily talking about a realm, okay, as if we're talking about a territory or a geographic sphere, okay? This is what the, the disciples and those in the early church, when they were meeting Jesus, they thought, hey, you're the king, you're the coming Messiah, so you're going to set up your reign in this territory and rule and bring flourishing immediately to our land. But The kingdom in the Bible is not as much about a realm as it is about a reign, okay? So so when we think kingdom, we need to think reign, all right? As in rule over all things. God's rule and reign has been over all things from the very beginning all the way to the end. Now, there is a king who is going to exercise and is exercising complete authority as he reigns over God's kingdom. And this is because he has defeated all of his foes. Think about this. Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is a victorious warrior. Now, I don't know if when you think about Jesus, and even let me put it a little more uh, practically, when you pray to God, the Father, Son, Spirit, do you pray to a God who is a victorious warrior? 
Because this is how the Bible describes our great God. Exodus 15, 3, the Lord is a warrior. Is this your conception of Christ? What does the book of Revelation say about Jesus? John writes in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, picture this, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is who Jesus Christ is. He is a conquering warrior. He has victory over all of his foes and the end. When all of his enemies rise up against him, Jesus will win the day because he has the power of God. The armies of heaven arrayed behind him are coming to execute his justice over all of his foes. So let's be clear. Is Jesus compassionate? Absolutely. Is Jesus caring? Is he call himself the good shepherd? Absolutely. And he does so for a reason. Just go back and listen to last month's sermon on Psalm 23. This is the good shepherd we know as Jesus. But Jesus is also strong, authoritative, and a victorious warrior. So we see this in verse 8 where the, the, the prophetic blessing says that the brothers shall praise you and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He's crouched as a lion. Who dares rouse him? And so this is a picture of Jesus having complete victory over all of his foes. And, and we then ask the question, well, who are the foes of Christ? Any, anyone and anything that opposes the work of God is a foe of Christ. So we automatically, thinking biblically speaking, we think of sin, Satan, and death. These are all the foes of Christ that, that he has defeated and will one day ultimately uh, defeat and do away with for good. And so let me just ask you, should, should this matter to us this morning? I mean, does this have any relevance for our lives that Jesus is a victorious king? Well, it, it doesn't if you don't wrestle with sin, if you're not any, under any spiritual attack or warfare. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're not going to die one day. You know what I'm saying? 
If you're, if you're good on that note, then you're probably good. But, but, but I don't know about you, but I'm like, I'm, I'm feeling the weight of sin. I'm feeling spiritual warfare going on around me. I'm feeling that, that one day I'm not going to live forever. I'm going to die. And so I need a God who can have victory over all of these things in my life. I mean, is anyone battling to, to honor God with your life and you're, and you're, and you're getting tripped up and you're stumbling? And we need a victorious Christ who is all-powerful, who can come through and help us, strengthen us to honor him with our lives. Does anyone fear death? Perhaps you're aging this morning. Perhaps you have aging parents this morning. I mean, we're all, we're all aging, right? But you, you, you hear where I'm coming from. Do you think that Jesus having power over the grave has anything to say to our friends who just lost a baby at 20 weeks this past week? This is the Christ that we need. We need a conquering Christ. We need a victorious Christ. We need a Christ who is always standing on the winner's podium, right? He always has the gold. He's undefeated over all of his foes. This is the God we serve. And so before we move on, okay, we should ask the question, how does Jesus obtain this victory? And I love what Revelation 5 says, okay? John has this vision of these scrolls that are to be opened And then he says, well, who can open the scrolls? And he says, behold, I looked, and there was no one who was worthy to open the scrolls. And he says that he began to weep. Chapter 5, verse 4, it says that John began to weep because there's no one worthy to open the scrolls. I believe that that, that all that's meaning to accomplish God's purposes of redemptive history in the world. But then verse 5, one of these 24 elders pipes up, and he says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. There's a victorious lion of Judah who has conquered all of God's foes so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. We have the picture of a king, a lion, who has conquered all. But then it says, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So the lion of the tribe of Judah is also the lamb of God who was slain for us. Jesus conquers his foes through his sacrificial death for us. So that it's through his death and our faith in his work when he was crucified on a Roman cross for us that now we obtain the victory that is his. Do you get that? Jesus, his victory has been given to us if we are in Christ. His victory becomes our victory. So that when God is looking at me, he's not looking at sinful, unrighteous, evil tanner, but he's looking at someone who has been changed by the work of Christ. Now I'm righteous. I'm filled with the Spirit. I am empowered to live 
my life for God. So Jesus conquered his foes through his death. He is the crucified and risen king. But not only that, not only will Jesus uh, reign through his, through his victory over all things, but he will also be praised through the obedience of all peoples. See this in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So the king will be praised through the obedience of all peoples. What we see here is that Christ's reign is both universal, all right, and it's also eternal. It says, it says that the scepter will not depart, the ruler's staff from between his feet. This is why Daniel 7, again, prophesying of Messiah, will say this in, in, in chapter 7, verse 14, and to him, Messiah, Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so do you see this? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't get any bigger than the reign of Christ. This is a reign that includes, number one, all people. So this is a universal reign. This is all the peoples of the world, the obedience of the nations, but it's not just comprehensive in scope, it's comprehensive in length as well because his reign goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. ever. You got it? He's never gonna be knocked off the throne. No one's gonna take the, the, the ruler's staff from him. His scepter is immovable, it's his. So the encouragement then is to line up with this king, to know this king, to be on the side of this king. Who dares rouse him? I want to I follow this king. And this king, by the way, is good, benevolent, merciful, gracious. He doesn't treat us as we deserve. His forgiveness knows no bounds. We saw that last week, right? And so if the obedience of nations, think about this, if the obedience of the nations belongs to Christ, then let me ask you, does your obedience belong to him today? Does Jesus have your obedience? Are you living under the rule and reign of God in your life today? How's your thought life? How's your tongue how are your actions toward others around you? Are you allowing God to be king over everything in your life? Because here's something about, let's talk about obedience, okay? Obedience is about allegiance, right? So whatever, whatever we are giving ourselves to in, in, our, in our thoughts, in our affections, we are, we are, we are giving our allegiance to that, that thing or that person. And so what we need to realize, okay, a lot of people resist Christianity because they don't want to be told what to do. They don't want a God ruling over them. They want to be their own God. But what these people don't realize, and perhaps this is you this morning, is that 
Everyone is giving their allegiance to someone or something. And what Christianity does, God in his grace gives us an opportunity to be freed from all of the tyranny and the oppression of all of these other false gods that can never come through for us and to place ourselves under his reign where there is blessing and freedom. And so what I want to do is invite you today to place yourself under the reign of Christ and find perfect freedom. And how does this happen? You say, well, Tanner, uh, how would someone go about that? How would, how would someone move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? And here's how it happens. We see who God is and we see what he's done for us in Christ. And when we really see it with our, with our eyes in, in a very clear way, when the eyes of our hearts are opened, then what happens is we say, oh, just wait a minute. God is more valuable. He's more worthy. Jesus is better than all of these other pursuits that I've been chasing with my life. And so our desires for these things, fill in the blank, are now replaced with desires for God to love and worship him. This is how we are made. We are all chasing after something. We are all worshiping something. We all have desires for something in our lives. And what the kingdom of God is inviting us to is the treasure that is found in Jesus Christ, that we might know God and love him and worship him. Thomas Chalmers was a pastor in Scotland in the 19th century, and he referred to this in a great uh, little treatise called uh, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Listen to what he says, okay? This is really good, a little deep, but it's really worth your mental energy here, okay? He says this, there is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty and joy, okay? So, so the, the heart is always prizing something above everything else, all right? The heart's desire for one particular object can be conquered. So insert drugs, alcohol, sex, envy, pride, jealousy. Just, just insert whatever it lies, esteem, power, privilege, money. The heart's desire for one particular object can be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. Now here's the sentence. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Jesus, when we see him for who he is, in all of his beauty, in all of his value, in all of his worth, we'll say, you know what? I was a fool to ever chase after anything else, any of other these idols or lesser false gods than to give my life to Jesus Christ. So here's, here's the good news. When we see Christ for who he is and when we follow him and give our lives to him and live under his reign and rule, then that is when we experience the blessing of God. We're going through the Old Testament, parts of the Old Testament, so that we'll see the story of the Bible is really the same from beginning to end. The kingdom of God, we said this in week one in the series, the kingdom of God is about God's people, all right? Insert Redemption Hill Church. God's people in God's place, living under God's rule. That's what we're talking about this week. Experiencing God's 
blessing. You get that? God's people in God's place, living under God's rule. And when we live under God's rule, we will experience God's blessing. And so Jesus is so worthy that Jacob prophesies, saying it's not just for the people of Israel that Jesus is worthy, but it's for all the nations of the world. So why, why are Scott and, and, why, and, and myself, why are we going to India next week? It's because Jesus is worthy. Missions exist because worship doesn't, right? So, so we want people to know who Jesus is and worship him with their lives. And so we're going to go tell them about who Christ is and the difference he can make in their lives. This is why we want to go to Toronto later this year. That's why we want to help plant a church in Charlestown with Todd, who's going to be preaching next week. Because we want all of greater Boston and all of North America and all people all over the world to know that Jesus is worthy of our highest love and highest obedience and highest affection and to find the freedom that is found there. So let me just sum it up by this, and it's going to help you read the historical books in the Old Testament too, okay? Jesus is worthy unlike any other king is worthy, all right? Got me? Shake your head if you want me. So, so, so when you get into 1 Samuel and read about King Saul, you're going to see a big fat F over King Saul. He failed. And King David, who followed King Saul, Israel's greatest king, he failed in many ways. Solomon failed. All the great kings, all the evil kings that we read about, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, all the prophets, major, minor, they're all saying these kings have failed. And they leave us longing for the true and greater king, Jesus Christ. To him we owe our supreme allegiance and affection. So the true and greater king is completely worthy of the obedience of all peoples. But then finally, the king will be praised for bringing abundant abundance. All right? Write that down. The king will be praised for bringing abundant abundance. Look at verse 11. It says that in that day, there will be the binding of his foal to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So, so what these verses are saying are that the everyday tasks of tying a donkey to a vine, that can happen in the grandest of ways with the choicest of vines, all right? We don't, we don't ride on donkeys. We don't ride on horses these days, all right? But, but the point being that the common everyday tasks that are performed now can be performed then in the, the most extravagant ways. Why? Because the, there is so much plenty. There is so much prosperity in this kingdom. So let's go to an analogy that we might understand a little better. It says then, at the end of verse 11, he has washed his garments in wine. Okay, so let me ask you, how did you do your laundry this week? If you did your laundry this week. Um, so so you, pr you probably have a washing machine, you know, some sort. You probably put your ALL up in there, you know, and kind of let it do its thing, okay? But probably most of you weren't taking expensive choice wine 
and pouring it in there. And just because you have so much abundance, you can put, put hundreds of dollars worth of wine and just get your clothes clean because you have that much abundance in your, I mean, if you're like me, you're trying to like see the line there and like kind of, I can get by with this much. Okay. So I don't have to save a couple pennies. You know what I'm saying? I mean, but, but that's, that's not how it's going to be in the coming kingdom of God. The reign of Christ brings plenty. It brings abundance. John 10.10 says, the thief, speaking of the serpent, remember Genesis 3, the serpent comes only to still kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So do you remember the story, Genesis 1, 2, and 3? Adam and Eve sin in the garden. They're kicked out of Eden, the, the, the place of paradise. But what happens in Jesus is the paradise that was lost is now regained in him. It's, it's paradise that was once lost that is now restored in Christ. And so the imagery of peace, the imagery of prosperity that we find running out throughout all the pages of the Bible tell us that there is a coming kingdom, a coming paradise for all who know God through Christ are going to enjoy that kingdom. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, just kind of dreaming for the Christian, what will it be to taste? At the fountainhead, that stream of which even in these lower reaches, proves so intoxicating. You got that? This is so, Jesus is so good. It's so sweet. It's so intoxicating. And let me think about it. Intoxication, being, being under the, the grip, addicted to this, this good and gracious God where we just want more of him and more of him and more of him because he is so good. I hope this is the God you're following Sunday through Saturday in your week where you just want more of him and more of him. I mean, can we just, like, just kind of like kick the TV to the curb a little bit? Can we put down our iPhones for a little bit? Can we spend some time on what really matters? I know you are and I hope you'll do so more and more, right? Because God is this good. He is that worthy. And then finally, verse 12, you ask, well, is is Jesus able to come through on these plans? And this is what verse 12 tells us. It says that his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth wider than milk. This is imagery to simply say that, that Jesus is the picture of power and strength. Whatever he promises, he will be able to get the job done. And so the invitation today for every person in the room is to confess Jesus as your true and greater king and in delight in him forever. Confess Jesus as your true and greater king and delight in him forever. The confession of the early church was simply this, three words. Jesus is Lord. It's another way to say Jesus is King. And so every person who decides to lose their life so that they can find their life through Jesus 
when they're baptized, the confession of their faith is always the same. Jesus is Lord. So this is why Jesus, in his early preaching ministry, the the words were often the first out of his mouth. What? Repent. Change. Turn around from the way that you're living. Turn to God. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is, is very near. And so there's an urgency here. Don't delay. Follow Christ. Bow to him. Live under his rule and reign. Experience his victory. And the blessing, the flourishing that comes through him. And so I don't care if, I don't care if you have heard the gospel of the kingdom for the first time today, or if this is the 10,000th time that you've heard the message of the gospel, the need for every one of us is the same to confess Jesus as king of our lives. I hope you'll do so right now as we bow our head and continue in worship. Father, we praise you because you are a great and powerful and victorious and flourish bringing God. And so, Lord, as we continue to respond to you today, Lord, I, I pray first and foremost that, that the, the heart of every person in the room would be to confess Jesus as the king of their lives. Lord, I pray that, that any person resisting that this morning would just continue to drink from these these empty fountains that will ultimately run dry until they see that that all the things that this world offers never truly satisfies or fulfills in the way that Jesus does. And so God, would you change us? Would you cause us to call on your name? Whether it be for the first time this morning or the 10,000th time, There's nothing better that we can do than to confess your lordship and live under your good rule and reign. So Lord, would you do that? Would you produce that in us? We pray this in the worthy name of Jesus. Amen. Anthony Paula, AP3, Ants, um, what I call him. This is one of my good friends here. Uh, we've done life together in community groups over the past year, year and a half or so, really. And uh, we give God enough praise for what he's done in his life. And so Anthony's going to share this morning a story of redemption and how the gospel has gripped his heart with great affection for him. So Anthony, uh, won't you share? Hello. So uh, about a week and a half ago, I love Tanner's enthusiasm. He texted me um, about a prayer request that he was saying he's praying for. And he's like, hey, listen, by the way, I want you to share on Sunday your redemption story. If you'd be, you know, willing to do that, let's talk about it. And I was just like, yeah, we'll talk about it. And he sends me a text message. Great. You know, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. You know, you got to love his enthusiasm. So, but it's my honor and privilege to stand here today to give honor to my Savior, Jesus Christ, and 
That is the only reason why I stand before you today. And uh, I just want to touch on, it's, it's just John said it's my story, but it's actually God's story of how he worked um, his redemptive plan in my life and has brought me to a place where now I am a child of the king. And it happens through the lives of ordinary people and the ordinary means of how he works his salvation through the lives of, of people that he's trying to reconcile to himself. So I have a lot to cover. I'm going to try to, I'm going to, it's going to be super condensed, real brief. And uh, just stick with me. I got a lot of amens and praise the Lord. I got my family with me today. So praise the Lord. So, um, so I just want to highlight um, the, the circumstances that led me to living in Medford. Um, I grew up in Everett, um, you know, my preteen days. And uh, my family, we didn't really go to church or anything like that. Um, with the exception of me and my sister Stacy here, yeah, we uh, actually, we'd go to church with my grandmother, my dad's mom, uh, just for the coffee and the donuts, just to be real. I mean, I knew that on Sunday I was going to get coffee and donuts, so I went along. And it even got to the point where I went to CCD for a little bit, but it was a bargaining chip to get this Batman game that uh, I was trying to wheel and deal. So I know Chris, he's probably feeling me on that. But anyway, so we didn't, re- you know, so I, my house, in my house, we didn't know God. We didn't grow up. Uh, going to church, serving the Lord, we, we just, you know, didn't know the Lord. And just as, uh, you know, things were very difficult in my house growing up, um, it, it was just, you know, a lot of situations I was exposed to as a kid, you know, really shaped and molded sort of how I turned out. And what that was is the absence of God. It wasn't so much of the things that were sort of there. It was just the absence of the presence of God. Um, and... My, my parents, the significant event that brought me to Method was when my parents, um, they separated. And I remember the day that, you know, I, I went for the ride. My dad was taking my mother to work, and my mother says, hey, Anthony, you know, I just want to let you know um, your father and I were getting a divorce. What do you think about it? So I sat back in my chair, and I leaned forward. I said, all right, Ma, you take Shana and Jeff. And you show them a better life than what me and Stacy had. And don't worry about dad and us. We'll be good to go. You know, I'll take care of him. And I couldn't take, I mean, that's what I said. But I, could, I, was, I was a little kid, so I couldn't take care of him. But that was what's on my heart. So that's what happened. Um, my mother left. Shana, Jeff went. And uh, it was me, Stacy, and my dad. And Stacy was with us for a short time. She was pregnant. And she had to go to a shelter, which worked out for the best in the long run because she got housing and everything. It was Right here, my nephew, right here, Alan. She was pregnant with Alan and stuff. So that worked out in the long run. So, so there I was. So, and, and I remember the day my dad comes in to me, and he comes in the living room. We're you know, getting ready to leave. I wasn't happy about leaving Everett. All my friends there, all like the people I knew. My dad comes in. He's like, hey, I found a place. All excited, you know. And uh, I'm like, all right, you know, we're in Everett. And he's just like, it's in Medford. And I, was just, I remember not being happy about that. And um, I was just like, man, I ain't going to Medford, you know. Method people and all this is, I, I just wasn't, I, I just wasn't happy with it. But anyways, we came there. So I went to go, you know, I, I moved, it was like the summer of 96, um, you know, just before eighth grade and freshman year. So I didn't know anyone in Method. Um, I didn't know anyone in Method at all. Uh, I was on my way to uh, visit my mother and the very first person that I met, um, well, let me just put it in like this. I was walking to Wellington Station so I can catch the train to my mother's house. So then I'm walking down Spring Street. All of a sudden, I come up to a big brown house, and I run into my boy Billy over there. You guys probably know him as Will, but, I mean, for me, it's Billy, you know, 
But anyways, I run into, I didn't know him. You know, this is the first person I meet, my reception to Medford. It was him and this other dude, Danny. And I was just walking, you know, just trying to keep encouraging myself. Oh, it ain't that bad, you know, be all right. You know, trying to stay positive about the situation. On my way to see my mom, I remember uh, I was just trying to find Wellington Station. Didn't know what bus to take or nothing. And all of a sudden, these dudes come out. And uh, it, let's just say that it was just sort of a mini confrontation that I had. With, I didn't want nothing to do with. So I was just like, man, this is like, you know, I wasn't, you know, it was kind of crazy, you know. But that's how I met Billy. And so that house was marked. I knew, all right, you know, stay away from that house or whatever. <laughs> and uh, so I go to school. And um, so then I start going to school. I think it was a Friday or something. I was catching the 134 back to, uh, I lived on Spring Street. And um, I get on the bus and I heard this kid, Chris, he was talking about like a fight with some Everett kids and Medford kids. So immediately I'm like, you know, what's going on here? Like, you know, some fights going on with some people that I might know. So he starts talking about it and he's like, oh, I'm going to bring you to the dude's house. You know, who's my boy, you know, he was a part of it or whatever. So I was like, all right. He's like, where do you live? I'm like, Spring Street. He's like, Spring Street. I'm like, that's kind of weird. I'm like, I live on Spring Street too. He's like, all right. So we started going down Spring Street, and then we go to Billy's house. And uh, so I remember walking up to the house, and I'm like, oh, man. I'm like trying to play it cool. I'm like, oh, I know this house. I was like, you know the dude that lives in here? He's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, all right, cool, cool. So we goes in there, shake hands. I know he recognized me, and I recognized him, but I don't know what happened. I feel kind of bad for Chris because Chris brought me there, but then all of a sudden, me and Billy, we just became tight. We like... We gave each other dap and handshakes, and next thing you know, we're hanging out and playing video games, and I slept over his house, and, like, we were, like, tight ever since. Like, Billy's, like, my brother, you know? Like, he's my brother in the Lord, but he's, like, my brother. You know, like, when we've been through a lot, like, when I was homeless, you know, I'd stay with him, or when he was homeless, he'd stay with me, so, and we've been through a lot of different things together. So that was just the setting of what brought me to Medford, the, the key person who I met in Medford. Um, down the line, my brother here, Mike McMillan, he... Uh, moved in to Billy's house, unbeknownst to me. You know, he kept it on the low. Um, you know, Mike was evangelistic, you know, still is, and he was sharing the gospel with Billy. He was working on him, you know what I mean? Like God was working his redemptive plan. Um, so he brought me to the place, led me to the people where I would hear his word so that, you know, the word of faith, the word of Jesus and his salvation would actually eventually come to my ears. Um, so he's working on Billy's heart, right? And he calls me up. He's just like, look, dude. He's like, I need you to meet this dude. He's like, and I'm like, what's it about? I was like, I was like who are we going to fight, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and he's like, it ain't even like that. You know, I'm, I'm afraid to tell you. And I'm like, you got to tell me because now I ain't going to come unless you tell me. He's like, it's about the Bible. I'm like, all right. So I'm like, all right. It was kind of weird, you know, but I was just like, all right, you know, for you, man, you're my boy. You know what I mean? I'll come. I'll come check it out. So I go up there, and I remember I first seen Mike sitting there, you know, he had this beard electric chair around his neck, and I'm like, this dude's a crazy, I picture like someone with like robes or something on, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, I don't know, like robes or something, you know? But it was Mike, so it was all fun and games and stuff, and, and, and Billy, he had like, I don't know, there was like 10 people there or something, there was a bunch of people there, and uh, I remember I was there, and I didn't know what to expect, I was kind of nervous for some reason, I have no idea why, um, but I remember we go upstairs, Mike had all these, you know, gospel track um, pitches on the wall, asking yourself, you know, you know, asking you shall see, seeking you shall find, knocking the door will be open unto you. Mike handed everyone Bibles. Um, you know, he, he started to go down Romans Road, you know, and he, he started, like, first of all, having me recognize my sin, you know. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I was like, yeah, 
yeah, that's right, I'm a sinner, I, mean, I can admit that, you know. And in what he was doing was God was opening my eyes through Mike. He was showing me of my need of a Savior because of my sin. Because of my sin, I was separated from God. And he was showing me through his word, and, and he said that the wages of sin was death. And I'm like, well, what's this death he's talking about? And he's talking about the death of eternal, of eternal death. The Bible says that if your name is not found written in the book of life, you're cast into like a fire. But God ain't willing that any should perish. So Jesus was sent to seek and save those who are lost. Jesus came to give life to those who just simply believe and trust in him so that, he could have, so that you could have life, so that you won't perish, that you'll be passed on from death and not step into judgment, but have everlasting life. That's the purpose of the cross. So from that moment on, I remember the key verse was when um, Mike said, Revelation 3.20, says, Jesus is saying, this is Jesus speaking. He's like, behold, I stand at the door of your heart and knock. If any man hear my voice and open, I will come into him and dine with him. And I just remember there was a point where I needed, I, I, I let Jesus, I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And from that moment on, the veil was lifted. My eyes were opened from the power of darkness unto light and from the power of Satan unto God. And I was changed and I was born again and I was a new creation in Christ. The Bible says if any man is in Christ, he becomes a new creation. The old has passed away and all things become new. And what happens there is no longer being dead in my sin, um, I've been made alive. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes in and fills you with his presence and he dwells in you and he gives you this new life. So that's what born again means is the fact that now you're born Jesus, God has made you alive spiritually. So that's basically what happened. And, you know, my life ever since that point, you know, I've been radically changed. I haven't been perfect. The Bible says that it's by grace that you are saved. It is not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works. As any man shall boast. So I needed this gift because I didn't deserve the grace, but it was given to me because the Bible says that he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God because he's not willing that any should perish. So fast forward. I know I'm, trying to, I'm running on here, but um, so I got saved at that point. And, uh, and I was just going through. I was still young. I was uh, 18 and stuff. Uh, you know, I, I moved back with my dad. Before I moved in, you know, I was going bouncing around. I actually lived in um, this brother's here's house. I was living in a foster home in Chelsea for a little while. And uh, I, I moved back in with my dad. Um, well, that was before, and then I moved back on my dad. But uh, I joined the military. You know, I served overseas, and my idea was going to be I was going to be a, a soldier for Christ. And, and the same vision that I entered the service with wasn't, you know, God wasn't done with me. He still had a lot of work to be done in my heart, which ultimately led me to, um, you know, just being groomed and refined. Um, I was going to church. I was going to church in Boston, and um, I remember one day. This is I got out of the service. I was wor I was working as a landscaper and stuff like that. I I I was in uh, a Wendy's, and uh, there was this kid named Abel. He was the cash register. I mean, the guy doing the cash register, whatever. So I was witnessing this dude, and then uh, at the corner of my eye, I see this dude just like standing there, like you know, like watching me, listening to me. So I'm like, all right, you know, this dude's next. After I done witnessing this dude. I have to hit him up, right? So I make, I, I make my, my transaction or whatever. So I slide over and we're leaning against the rail sort of. And, and Tana, it was Tana. 
And uh, he's like, I heard you were sharing the gospel with that man. I was like, yeah, absolutely. And I forget what I said, but I started like trying to feeling him out, seeing if he needed the gospel real quick. <laughs> and, and then right away, he's just like, I'm part of this new church plant in Medford and everything. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, he's, I was like, he gave me a card. He's like, you're invited. I was like, yeah, that's cool, but I got a church. You know, he's like, my name's Tanner. I'm like, ah, we got a Tanner at that church too. Uh, so it's just, it's just how it happened. You know, I was cool where I was at. Circumstances happened the way they happened. I ended up coming to Redemption Hill, spring step in November 2011. I remember I come in there. I was just in a place where I needed to hear from the Lord. You know, I come sit down, and then the service, everything starts. I look up, and there's Tanner on the stage. I'm like, this dude's the pastor, you know? <laughs> so, so it was cool, you know? So, and, it went, and what was special about Redemption Hill was uh, immediately I felt, you know, the Holy Spirit, you know? And I loved their mission statement. You know, their mission statement says, Redemption Hill exists in order to glorify God by living out his, me- his mission as a community transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, his mission is to seek and save those who are lost. His mission is to preach the gospel and teach all nations to know God and, and to know of this life that he offers. And it was genuine and authentic. And I remember meeting my brother John, man, and, uh, and just the, the heart uh, of of a real pastor and a shepherd, you know, I was going through difficult uh, uh, conditions of, you know, just sort of my living situation was messed up, and this brother here let me into his house, let me sleep on his, uh, his couch or whatever, he, you know, he'd wake up in the morning, make me breakfast and everything, and it was kind of, I mean, for me, it was really, it was really touching, and I just felt God was really at work in, uh, in the lives of the two leaders here, and also, there's a lot that goes on here, and it's not just John and Tanner, I mean, you look around the room, like even John Reddy, Abby, Emma, you know, Chris, uh, the list goes on, Wes, Jules, like Walt, you know, there's so many people here that God is using, and that's what makes this place special, and it's not so much the building, it's, it's the presence of God working in this place and through us for His glory, and that's what it's all about, you know, so that's my quick redemption story, this actually... <laughs> So it's actually uh, God's story, and I'm going to hand it over.